Welcome to the Pratt Library. I'm Carla Hayden, Director, and it's truly a pleasure to welcome you to the 2006 Mankin Day Celebration. I must say, it's not every year that we fill all available seats in the auditorium for Mankin Day, so Mr. Hitchens, you've helped us set a record today. Thank you. In September of each year, on the Saturday closest to Mankin's birthday, September 12th, the Pratt Library honors the memory, career, and bequest of H.L. Mencken. Mencken had a long, warm friendship with the Pratt, as former director Dr. Castagna described it. From the time he discovered Huckleberry Finn on the shelves of his neighborhood branch library, through countless visits over the years to the Central Library, Mencken was devoted to the Pratt Library. He once said, if there were no Pratt Library, Baltimore would probably still be a mob town as it was down to the 80s. And in his letter to Dr. Wheeler announcing his request, he wrote, It has always been my plan to leave the library my own set of first editions of my books. I'd hesitate to part with it, of course, during my lifetime, for sometimes I need it for reference. But my brother has instructed me to turn it over to you the day that I am converted to an angel. And we have them. So we're glad to have you with us today as we remember H.L. Mencken. I hope you'll have time to visit the new Mencken room, talk to our staff there, and see exhibits of treasures from the collection. And following this afternoon's program, I invite you to join us on the second floor in the Edgar Allan Poe room for reception and book signing. And now it is my pleasure to introduce Mr. David Thaler, a Baltimore resident member of the Mencken Society, and a very good friend of the Pratt. Uh, thank you, Dr. Hayden. Thank you, everybody. I'd like you to join me in giving a, a round of applause for Dr. Carla Hayden and the wonderful job that she does for the citizens of Maryland. Well, as you may know, we have a little bit of an expanded Mencken weekend uh, uh, this year. Uh, tomorrow morning, um, I'll be uh, privileged to give a lecture on whether Mencken was anti-Semitic or not at Temple Oheb Shalom. And in the afternoon, uh, Dean Winston Tabb uh, from um, uh, Hopkins uh, will be opening the Robert Wilson collection at the Peabody Library. Uh, and uh, Marian Elizabeth Rogers, who I'm delighted to see here today, who has just published a monumental new uh, biography of Mencken, will be giving the, giving the lecture on the lighter side of H.L. Uh, Mencken. And I hope you'll be able to attend those uh, events as well. It's often said that when our politicians uh, do something particularly asinine, that true Menkenians ask, what would Mencken say? But what they're really expressing is the yearning for someone like Mencken to burst the bubbles of hypocrisy and to entertain us by exposing life's enduring carnival of bunkum, and that wish has been answered by today's speaker. Educated at Oxford University, where he was a Trotskyist, I'm told it's a Trotskyist and not a Trotskyite, but I'm not really sure of that. He wrote for the magazine International Socialism and then The New Statesman, where he became well known as the designated heavy hitter of the left, attacking Henry Kissinger as a war criminal the Catholic Church, and many others. He later wrote for The Nation, where he attacked the stupidity of Ronald Reagan, criticized George Bush the Elder, and opposed the First, World War, the First Gulf War, claiming that Bush Sr. had lured Saddam Hussein into it. Now a recovering liberal, his epiphany came in 1989, when the Ayatollah Khomeini declared a fatwa against his longtime friend Salman Rushdie. He was one of the first to call attention to the dangers of radical Islam, calling it Islamofascism, which is a term he's often credited with coining. Having come over from the dark side, he became disenchanted with President Bill Clinton, accusing him of being a rapist and a serial liar. And he attacked Michael Moore in a scathing review of Fahrenheit 9-11, and has become one of the most powerful voices in support of the democratization of the Middle East. His most iconoclastic work, however, may be his 1995 book about Mother Teresa, entitled The Missionary Position, in which, in which he called the soon-to-be saint the ghoul of Calcutta. Some even speculate that he was the inspiration for Tom Wolfe's character Peter Fallow in the 1987 
uh, novel, The Bonfire of the Vanities. Demonstrating the breadth of his scholarship, he has recently published insightful biographies of two American founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, whom he called the man who designed America, and Thomas Paine. In my opinion, these are the most insightful analyses of the American soul by a non-native since de Tocqueville. Perhaps the greatest test of intellectual influence, however, is the intensity of one's literary feuds, and our speaker has been in some humdingers, especially a contretemps which took place after 9-11, where he debated Noam Chomsky on the question of essentially who was the bigger jerk, John Ashcroft or Osama bin Laden. This was one of the most highly charged exchanges in American literary history. If the true test of a speaker for the H.L. Mencken Memorial Lecture is how well he stirs up the animals, then I can think of no one more appropriate than today's. Leaving no ox on gourd, he's one of the country's most iconoclastic, prolific, and provocative writers, but even more importantly, he's a rip-snorting good read. I'm honored to welcome Mr. Christopher Hitchens. Thank you, David. Um, thank you for taking my mother's dictation so <laughs> assiduously. Um, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, very much for coming. I'm very honored the presence of the Dean of Johns Hopkins, who I found coming in to pay his fines for the books he'd uh, kept up for so long. So embarrassed to find me on the steps that he had to come to the lecture and sit in the front row. Um, it's a great pleasure to be back in Baltimore. It's also a great honor, of course, not just to speak in the name of and on the anniversary of H.L. Mencken, but to be at a library that, to my shame, in all my visits I hadn't visited before, um, and to also dip one's flag in salute to uh, Enoch Pratt, was quite something to see as we walked along the noble corridor to get here today see under the pictures of the ancient lords of Baltimore with their wigs and perukes, a line of young people down below in the lobby using the, what I hate to call, and Rachel Mencken would have supported me in hating calling the interactive facilities, but it's a start, and it's the sort of thing that makes one inspired. I know there was a wonderful film, I'm, I'm wandering slightly, but I'll, I'll come back in just a second, called La Santa, a few years ago, made about... Uh, an attempted democratic revolution in Morocco and the exiles in Paris are talking about how they miss their homeland and one of them says what is it that you most miss and they discuss what it is um, their nostalgia for their homeland and one of them says what I miss what I miss is seeing the workers learning to read by candlelight that's what inspires me okay so I knew you'd get it now <laughs> the last time I was here was to visit uh, the grave of Miss Dorothy Parker in, um, which, as I'm sure many of you will know, is located in the garden at the rear of the national headquarters of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. And it had been neglected for many years. It had been rather forgotten. Her ashes for a good deal of time, remember her on Excuse My Dust, um, had molded in, in a jar in a New York lawyer's office. And finally, the, uh, the then head of the NAACP, to whom she'd left all her fortune in a, in a bad time, in a thin time, uh, had said, well, if, if she has no resting place, we will provide her one. And they built a little garden, which is in the shape of a round table. It's designed to look like an Algonquin round table, the back of the building, and they, they put the ashes there, and there's a very nice little inscription. And I, and Mrs. Merrily um, Evers, the widow of the great Medgar, and Julian Bond and others were thinking of doing a special ceremony to reopen the cleaned-up, renovated Parker uh, garden. And as I arrived... I was pleased to see a young lady with a broom sweeping the leaves and the, and the debris that had, the wind tends to blow over this round table configuration in the garden. And I said, oh, hello, how are you? And um, I'm Christopher Hitchens. I've come to interview Mrs. Evers, and I thought I'd take a look at the garden. And she said, well, uh, it's nice to meet you. My name's Chris Mencken. So I thought, that's not possible. <laughs> Because say what you will about the old mammal, and I'm coming back to that, one thing he really, his misanthropy is partly proved by his absolute reluctance to reproduce. <laughs> and 
she told me, but I thought, I can't not ask. And I hoped she would say that her name was Henrietta Louise. <laughs> but if you can't be called Henrietta Louise, uh, Chris is a step in the right direction, I hope you'll admit. So she said that in point of fact, she was the daughter of, I have it actually written down genealogically, I, I won't bore you by looking it up, but it, she's the daughter of his uncle's second cousin, something of the kind. She, anyway, she was kin, and I thought, very nice to find a Mencken sweeping up after Miss Parker. <laughs> and I, I must come to Baltimore more often. Uh, but I remembered that um, it, it stands to the credit of Mencken. I, I shall get to the meat of what I want to say now. Many things stand to the credit of H.L. Mencken. First, that he, as I teach my students, follows in the direct traces, really, of Frederick Douglass, also of this great state, and uh, Mr. Mark Twain, Mr. Samuel Clemens, in establishing what we can definitely call a separate American literature, something that is not a dependent branch of English, that is a, a separate and autonomous American letters. So that is this greatest achievement. He makes, he, Twain and Douglas, I think, make this separation unambiguous and unambivalent. Uh, he confirmed it by writing a wonderful taxonomy or philology, whichever you prefer, of the American language, showing that this, this, this muscular new prose required also new forms of expression, and there are many many terms, most of them I'm happy to say, blunt and pejorative that we must use every day that we owe to the old boy. Uh, second was to, was to be that very rare and highly prized uh, thing, an Anglophobe. Um, I have to confess to you, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, comrades, friends, uh, it, it can be too easy to sound like me in this country. Uh, you talk to the AT&T operator and she'll say, I wish you'd keep talking. I love your accent. And I say, and I say, no, honey, it's not me who has the accent, it's you. And they say, oh, that's so great. Um, I, I, pre I would have preferred to live in Mencken's time when it would be dangerous for me to go out on St. Patrick's Day. Or to go, I'm wearing a badge saying, kiss me, I'm English. Um, or to uh, be at a German beer hall in Baltimore or Chicago. It would, you'd have to, you'd have to, it would cost you a little, as it should, uh, to be a Brit. You know, we are no better than anyone else, but no worse, I mean. These things have to be said. Mencken didn't like the influence of, the dominance of, of Englishness, royalism, and associated tropes in American life, and, and mounted a, a, an extraordinary rearguard action against it. Indeed, um, I have to say that I think, I'm getting ahead of what I want to say later, but I'll mention it now, that it must have something to do with his detestation of um, what the polite call wasp and the realistic call redneck. Um, <laughs> what he elsewhere described as the hookworm and incest belt of Anglo-Saxondom, <laughs> uh, lying somewhere to the immediate south uh, west of the Mason-Dixon line, which uh, I know is not far from here. Well, someone had to say this, okay, and, uh, and it was it's just as it's fortunate for us that it was said so well, and then his third achievement um, was the, in, in the American Mercury and the Smart Set in, in many other enterprises of his own devising of, of, and publication. He managed to introduce many, many American readers of the newly literate, shall we say, leisure class to the concept of modernism in, in writing. And whether he was encouraging the most diverse and unusual set of people, it might be Theodore Dreiser, for example, who's proletarianism, he said he admired. That must have cost him a little bit to say, I must, I, I must say, but he did say it. Or Studs Lonigan, uh, I mean to say James Farrell's Studs Lonigan trilogy, where um, he even excused James T. Farrell his Trotskyism on the grounds that at least his prose style would bear examination, um, to Dorothy Parker, and another subject I'm going to have to come back to, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. But he certainly did encourage Mrs. Parker at the time, Miss Parker, I'm sorry, at just the moment when she could have used a bit of encouragement, and therefore it's a sad thing, given the, the anecdote with which I opened, that when they finally met, which was in this great city in 1924, for an evening of booze and shame, she ended up walking out because she could not stand the way that he would make vulgar saloon bar remarks about African-Americans. Mrs. Parker, you couldn't do that in Mrs. Parker's presence. She would not... 
allow it, up with it she would not put, and even though she had a, an elder and a revered elder and editor to deal with, she said, I'm sorry, I'm not staying for any of that. So if you like, I'm already launched into the, the title, the working title I gave my, to my remarks today, which is Mencken in Light and Shade or, or uh, Chiaroscuro, and um, I'm stuck with it. Uh, I suppose if you wanted to read the strongest uh, and most elegant attack on Mencken, and I think it's very important for a critic to attack someone at their strongest and not to look for the weak points or personal foibles or, or private uh, uh, shortcomings, it would be, I wonder if I could ask anyone to show a hand if they've read it, oh, Gary, Professor Gary Wills in his book Under God. Okay. That's good, because I always like to know a little bit more than the audience does. <laughs> but well done. Um, okay, well, I can expatiate now without much fear of contradiction. Um, <laughs> Professor Wills, in his book, he revisits the case we all think that we know, namely the, the celebrated case in, in Dayton, Tennessee, of the so-called Scopes or, or Monkey Trial, where the attempt by the state of Tennessee to ban the teaching of evolution, or indeed the study of Charles Darwin, was, was undone in court, even though the case was lost, by Clarence Darrow with H.L. Mencken, at the very least holding his coat and passing him ammunition. Uh, Gary Wilson says that the liberal consensus on this is a smug one, that it involves condescension to those who live south of the Mason-Dixon line, that it's not really quite true to compare them to gaping primates the entire time. Um, not all the time. Uh, that uh, William Jennings Bryan, described by Mencken, in my favorite phrase anyway, is the idol of all morondom. Uh, was in fact a closet humanist. His fear was not the teaching of evolution, but his fear was that the social Darwinist doctrine would, would replace what he regarded as the social gospel, and that uh, society would become uh, a, a visceral struggle for survival of the fittest with the weak and the feeble and the unfit and the ill-favored and the unfortunate going as it were, to the wall, to the, the bottom of the pack. And that it was this, rather than any other confrontation, that really marked the, the event, and that uh, stuck up elitist humanists and uh, others like, say, myself, um, were just that, uh, condescending uh, northern and uh, wasp snobs. Well, there's, I think it, it, everyone owes it to themselves to read that, to read that critique and to consider it, but by a fortunate coincidence, I'll hold it up, and I'm sure the library will be getting it, but it isn't published yet, but my friend Aunt Winslow, former literary editor of The Nation, by the way, anyone who has a cell phone that rings should know, we know where you live, <laughs> and we know where your children go to school. <laughs> um, new book, it's, it's everything Mencken ever wrote on the Dayton trial, a lot of it not yet published, including uh, the transcript of the cross-examination by Clarence Darrow of William Jennings Bryan. Do I have your undivided attention? Very good. You wouldn't believe how annoying that can be. Um, and it's made me lose my place just for a second. Yes. Uh, in, in this book, it's called A, a Religious Orgy in Tennessee. It'll be, it'll be out in about a month or so from now. We are recalled rather... Uh, and I say this against Professor Wills for all his decency and all his efforts as a scholar, uh, right back to the very first principles. Let me read you something that appeared in the New York Times uh, a week ago, no, two weeks ago. The headline is, under the byline of Cornelia Dean, um, Evolution Major Vanishes from Approved Federal List. I quote, uh, evolutionary biology has vanished from the list of acceptable fields of study for recipients of a federal education grant for low-income college students. The admission is inadvertent, said Catherine McLean, a spokesman, spokeswoman for the Department of Education, which administers the grants. There's no explanation for it being left off the list, she added. It's always been an eligible major. This seems to me to mean the admission is not inadvertent. Um, that the omission occurred at all is worrying scientists concerned about threats to the teaching of evolution. Uh, one of them, Lawrence Krauss, a physicist at Case Western Reserve University, said he learned about it from someone at the Department of Education who contacted him after his essay on the necessity of teaching evolution appeared in the New York Times. 
Dr. Krauss would not name his source, who he said was concerned about being publicly identified as having drawn attention to the matter. In other words, in Washington, D.C., my hometown, the capital of these United States, sometimes referred to as the capital of the free world, which houses the Department of Education, a civil servant in that department who knows and understands why the teaching of the only explanation of our presence here and the origins of our species is afraid to call a distinguished professor at another university to alert that person to the fact that this subject has been dropped for those who stand most in need of it, those who are in, in, in receipt of federal grants for education. Uh, let this sink into you for a moment or two. Um, there was a time, uh, it was Mencken's time, when the uh, forces of morondom uh, and creationism felt strong enough to say that the teaching of evolution should be outlawed altogether, the teaching of Darwinism should be forbidden completely. Now, perhaps not as brave, or we'd like to think not as confident as that, uh, they demand in a smarmy tone, of a, a whining tone, of a pseudo-fair-mindedness and, and uh, even-handedness. People confuse these words, by the way. They, I might just give you a quick linguistic interlude since I'm about it. You hear people say even-handed, fair-minded, objective, impartial, disinterested, so as if these things all meant the same thing. They mean nothing of the sort. The struggle for objectivity, for example, means the automatic discard of things that are subjective or disproved or false. It doesn't mean you have to give equal time to every opinion. It means you start by eliminating what's false. There is no cloak at all of objectivity under which it can be said uh, that creation science, the only intelligent thing about this theory, by the way, the only clever thing is they've managed to get us to call it intelligent design. <laughs> Don't do that. Never call it intelligent design. Call it creationism, which is what it is, Alongside evolution, it, that's only going to look smart when we have astrology taught in the astronomy class. Why not? Uh, now you'll take your alchemy major, darlings. Uh, open your books uh, from the reverse end. And, uh, uh, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's obscene. It's, it's a deliberate attempt to stultify the young people of this country. Why don't they ask if they believe this stuff? Why don't they ask that it be preached on the planes or the trains? Why don't they ask for a moment of silence in the stock exchange if they think all this is so important? Why does it have to be the children? Well, why do you think? And Mencken knew very well what's involved when, when, when the churches say, well, you know, we're fine with everyone else, but we want the children, and we want them now, and we want to impress them because we are not going to be able to teach this stuff to anyone who's grown up and intelligent. <laughs> well, what, what, what larger admission could you possibly require? And why shouldn't such a person, it seems to me, take a misanthropic view um, not to say an anthropomorphic view, perhaps a simian or a gaping primate view uh, of those who don't so much um, uh, dis uh, disbelieve in uh, the theory of evolution as in their persons appear to disprove it. Well, these are the questions, and it seems to me, and I'll make this as a free, free suggestion to you, that when this comes up next, that when equal time is demanded in the schools, uh, under, the, under this rubric of supposed fair-mindedness that we say and mean the following. Very well, let us have equal time. Any church that has a tax rebate, any church that gets tax relief from the government, or any church that accepts the smallest grant of any kind from any faith-based government initiative that is in the smallest way depend on the public wheel must teach in its pulpit the teachings of Darwin half the time. And must in its schools teach the children the Sunday schools evolution at least half the time. And must in its uh, porch and lobby display the literature of those who believe that we are uh, not made by God, but very self-evidently uh, made by a rather random and brutal process of evolution. Uh, then we'll believe that they believe in equal time, but not until then. So it seems to me that we have never acquired the spirit of H.L. Mencken for longer. Excuse me. Uh, for, for more urgently, uh, for a very long time. Um, having said that, and have, have, have been as, uh, I hope, unequivocal as I can be, I just would like to point out the, short, the, the slight shortcomings of, of Mencken in this wonderful archive of material that he, that he deployed, this tremendous barrage that he deployed in, um, in Dayton, Tennessee. I think I've located the crucial problem. But before I do that, I'll just point out a, a stylistic weakness, which is very present in a lot of his work. 
um, in one of his essays on the subject, this one I think was for The Nation, uh, he says, reporting from Tennessee, the rabble is in the saddle, and down here it makes its first campaign under a general beside whom Watt Tyler seems like a wart beside the Matterhorn. It's not bad. It's okay. But then you turn a few pages, and you find, from the same courtroom, under the same byline, in South Carolina, for example, the cause falls to the Honorable Cole L. Blees, who is to Brian what a wart is to the Great Smoky Mountains. Um, the New Yorker used to have a section, if you remember, called Block, that metaphor. Um, Megan had a tendency to hyperbole. I think it's worth pointing out that he didn't always have it under control. But he was also cognitively, also cognitively very dissonant. And this I find I must put before you for your, for your consideration, ladies and gentlemen. Because it goes to a word that we all think we all know, and we all think that we revere. Um, as you probably do know, uh, Mencken's obituary for William Jennings Bryan took the form of a howl or paean uh, of a warrior bestriding the corpse of a defeated and uh, dead foe. He, Mencken wanted the credit for Bryan dropping dead. He wasn't, it wasn't enough to make him look like a baboon on the stand. <laughs> he, he wanted him dead, and he wanted, he wanted to claim credit for killing him. And um, the Baltimore Press wouldn't print his first uh, version of this. So he, he printed with gray, very, very grudgingly. He wrote them a second, more moderate one, and then very typically he wrote a third one that was much nastier <laughs> and kept it for later. But I'll just read from one of these. Um, Brian was a vulgar and common man, a cad undiluted. He was ignorant, bigoted, self-seeking, blatant and dishonest. His career brought him into contact with the first men of his time. He preferred the company of rustic ignoramuses. It was hard to believe, watching him at Dayton, that he had traveled, that he'd been received in civilized societies, that he had been a high officer of state. He seemed only a poor clod, like those around him, deluded by a childish theology, full of an almost pathological hatred of all learning, all human dignity, all beauty, all fine and noble things. He was a peasant come home to the dung pile. Imagine a gentleman, and you have imagined everything that he was not. Um, Corking stuff, I think you'll have to agree. <laughs> and now the coda says, the job before democracy is to get rid of such conai, such riffraff. If it fails, they will devour it. In other words, the, the mob will devour democracy. I myself favor this formulation. However, let me direct you to the almost immediately ensuing uh, post-Brian triumphal screed where the first one's written before the guy's really cold. This is a bit later. Upon that hook, in truth, Brian committed suicide, as a legend as well as in the body. He staggered from the rustic court ready to die, and he staggered from it ready to be forgotten, save as a character in a third-rate farce, witless and in execrable taste. The chances are that history will put the peak of democracy in his time. It has been on the downward curve among us since the campaign of 1896. If you spot the reference, you'll know that that was the campaign that Mencken secretly believed that Brian had won. He thought that Brian had been cheated of the presidency in 1896. In other words, when he says this, he's saying that democracy is so dangerous that it nearly made Brian president some years before the... Well, and that it's fortunately been on a downward curve. And I'll add, if I may, the conclusion of the coda of this essay. Such is Brian's legacy to his country. He couldn't be president but he could at least help magnificently in the solemn business of shutting off the presidency from every intelligent and self-respecting man. That remind you of anything? <laughs> the storm perhaps won't last long, as times go in history. It may help, indeed, to break up the democratic delusion, now already showing weakness, and so hasten its own end. So there's a very direct, not just cognitive dissonance, but, but uh, textual, um, definitional, uh, contradiction in what Mencken is writing within days um, of about the same subject and on the same theme and about the same person from the same time and place. And it's very clear that he could not make up his mind as to whether he was saying Brian was a threat to democracy or was the representative of what democracy meant. And I'm afraid to say that we will find this problem throughout the reading of all of Mr. Mencken's 
work. I'm keeping my eye on the clock. The agreement was for not less than half an hour. I think you have to be a spellbinding speaker to talk for more than 40 minutes, and if you are spellbinding, you don't need 40, and I don't want to abridge our time together, but I just must make this closing uh, point argument, if I may. Um, it, this is to be found, this problem, uh, is to be found in Mencken's work on Nietzsche. He was the first person in the United States ever to publish a book on the subject, and he regularly mocked all those who couldn't spell or pronounce Friedrich Nietzsche's name. Uh, but uh, in, the, in this book, published in 1908, uh, he writes as follows. Um, I quote, There must be complete surrender to the law of natural selection, that invariable natural law which ordains that the fit shall survive and the unfit shall perish. All growth must occur at the top. The strong must grow stronger, and that they may do so, they must waste no strength in the vain task of trying to lift up the weak. Now, say this for Henry Lewis. He did not mince his words or leave you wondering about the ambivalences or the nuances. There was no chiaroscuro when he wanted to be, to be vividly clear. He, there was no, no, no obscuring shade. Um, it seems to me that this explains the dark side uh, reasonably well and partly licenses what was said by Professor Wills about the Scopes trial, that at least in, a, in an arcane manner there was another trial going on in that courtroom um, about the social implications of Darwinism. It, it explains, it doesn't, in my view, either condemn uh, or recommend uh, Mencken's attitude during the First World War when he had to watch with great disgust not just German waiters being bullied and shoved around in Baltimore for questions of supposed dual loyalty, or Daxons and Pomeranians being kicked in the street by super patriots, or in a gesture that's only recently revived with the absurd idea of Liberty Fries in our Capitol <laughs> Hill restaurant, uh, the renaming of sauerkraut as Liberty Cabbage uh, by the partisans of the detested Woodrow uh, Wilson, the greatest uh, bum-faced hypocrite ever to occupy the <laughs> Oval Office. Uh, but not only that, but the, the forbidding by President uh, of Colombia, Nicholas Murray Butler, the teaching of German philosophy or the German language. In a sense, a pogrom against not just everything Teutonic, but everything that was from Lessing or, or Heine or Schiller or Goethe as well. I don't think Mencken ever forgave that, and I don't think he should have done, and I don't think we have the right to forget it. But I don't think there's any question but that it led to his greatest failure, which though I'm anticipating David's talk tomorrow at the shul, I, I, must, I must mention. When uh, the 1930s came, it was a good period for frauds, mountebanks, jerks, demagogues of all kinds, all the sorts of people who Mencken couldn't stand. When the 1930s came and when the single greatest uh, windbag, windbag and scumbag uh, combination narcissist, uh, big mouth, demagogue, mobilizer of myth and superstition in the, in the person of the Austrian uh, house painter, Adolf Schickelgruber, I mean, a name Nenkin would certainly have known, uh, later more famous under another surname, arose, it is of extraordinary interest that with a target that size, and that big, and that, that with so many offerings to be wrung from it, so many essays and polemics to be derived from it, uh, that Mencken only wrote one thing about it. And that was the review of Mein Kampf, uh, written um, for his own magazine, and saying, well, you have to understand if you read this book that there are many reasons why Jews are unpopular in Germany, and, and it can't be expected that this will change. And he knew, he must have known, what would happen, which was that his, his long-time friend and patron, ally, uh, and publisher Alfred J. Knopf would be in agony about it. So he had to know he was inflicting also a great injury and a great hurt on a real friend, but that's all he managed to write. And I could forgive him that, because it's not bad to have an exegesis of Mein Kampf, and it, and it may as well be, be blunt, and it may be, as well be brutal, and it may as well say it might be worth you knowing why so many Germans feel anti-Semitic. That's, that's okay, but for that to be all that's written, uh, at such a time and in such a crisis, and that it should be instead Franklin Roosevelt who becomes the 
target upon whom the vials of Mencken's wrath and scorn and contempt are appended. Seems to me that one can't, therefore, I came to this conclusion very, very reluctantly after reading Terry Teachout's biography, one will have to dispute the right of Mencken to be in the American canon, the American pantheon, in quite the same way as great humanists like Frederick Douglass and Mark Twain, for example. There may be a term set, a limit set to his, to his uh, appeal. It's a double failure. He wrote one thing that wasn't very good, and he wrote nothing that was excellent, and he missed a chance, and we have to suspect his motives for doing so. So what is, how can we so safely say the great sage the great wit, the great foe of all buffoons, the great foe of all clowns, imposters, thugs, bullies, and so on. Can't quite be said. Uh, well, everybody knows the coda to this, which is the time bomb he left behind us, in, in fact, in the precincts of this library, I believe, where he revealed his unkind personal thoughts about categories of people and about people as individuals, who was unsparing. I prefer, again, I'm not going to anticipate, David, I prefer to say that Mencken uh, was a misanthrope rather than a bigot or a racist or a, in the ways that we usually attribute him. But I return you in closing to the great uh, struggle that Clarence Darrow had on the, uh, on the platform, on the podium, having put William Jennings Bryan in the witness box, to get William Jennings Bryan to admit that he was a mammal. <laughs> former Secretary of State, two-time presidential candidate of the Democratic Party in the first quarter of the 20th century, would not agree to this insult. Um, Mencken used to describe himself as a mammal, and as he walked down the street and as he observed uh, his fellow creatures, he knew they were all mammals too. And since that's the beginning of wisdom, I'd like to close by quitting him at least on that charge. So my fellow mammals, creatures, thank you very much for attending. Praise belongs only to Allah. <laughs> uh, we do have time for a few questions, but I would, uh, uh, a prescient remark, because I'd like to use the moderator's prerogative and ask you what Mencken had to say about Islam, and if that affected your uh, views at all. Well, perhaps, yeah, well, thank you. I, I mean, perhaps I didn't say enough about his work just as a scholar. I, I talked about him as this sort of official greeter for modernism and sponsor of many of its stars, um, and importer of some European uh, ideas as well, all to his credit. But uh, I was rereading his treatise on the gods not long ago, uh, and enjoying it thoroughly, as, as one always does. It's often thought of as a work, if you like, of satire and um, ridicule, and it, it is that. Uh, but, and it's so cleverly and deftly done that you don't notice, this is one of Mencken's great other achievements, how much work went into everything he wrote. I mean, it's a, it's a real achievement to have inhaled so much stuff and to have assimilated so many books and then to be able to pass it on in, in such a graceful manner. And um, I've been making a study of the, the, the religion, um, if it is a religion. Um, some Muslims doubt it. It's more like a, a faith, an observance, the surrender to God. Uh, the abject posture towards faith that is known as Islam. Um, for a book of mine that's coming out in May called God is Not Great, which you can order now if you want. <laughs> and I've been noticing, as one has to notice, that Islam is nothing but a pathetic plagiarism of the worst of Judaism and the worst of Christianity. Um, apparently dictated to an illiterate epileptic. There's one book that Islam has spent a great deal... This, this, this is a, su a subject known to very few. There are, there are a number of, of usually former Muslim scholars, usually people who've had to escape with their lives from their countries of birth, who are trying to do now for the Quran what's been done for many decades now to biblical scholarship. In other words, textual criticism, criticism in context, study of different and discrepant editions, meanings, translations, and so on. A project that Islam has to resist because it not only claims to be the undiluted word of God, but the last words God ever spoke or will need to speak. When you have the Quran, you need no more. 
the fantastic arrogance of this claim is, of course, matched by the incredible fanaticism with which it is advanced. Well, um, there is a book that Islam has spent a long time trying to track down and eliminate, and I've only, I and these other scholars I'm working with very recently really come across it. It's a book by a, a Jesuit father uh, called Father Lamens, a Flemish Belgian, who lived in Beirut in the mid-19th century and who became a master of the Arabic language and, and a student of all the, the Isnads, the predecessor texts of the Quran and of the hadiths, the supposed sayings of the Prophet and his companions in own masterwork, and, and wrote a long critique showing that it was man-made. This book was not encouraged by Father Lamens's church, I think because they didn't want it to be provable that religions could be man-made, even if they were Muslim. But um, there's, a, you know, there's a general solidarity among the clerics on this point of view. <laughs> but it's very, very, very much uh, uh, hated by, by Islamists. And it's, it took me... And, you know, book searching is easier and easier these days, and I have many good magazines that I can call on to help me. It took me several months to find a, a, an undamaged copy of this book. Well, Mencken mentions it as if everyone should know about it. I was really quite surprised. He said, well, as Father Lamens once so eloquently pointed out, he uses him as if it was something every educated person should know. I was impressed, I have to say, about that. Uh, are there any questions? Yes, sir. Would you mind giving that another? I'm awfully sorry, because I'm going to have to ventriloquize you, I think, sir. Would you have another run at saying that? Because I think I'm going to have to pass it on. Does um uh, does everyone in the audience hear the question? No, I thought not. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll give. If you, you tell me, sir, if this is a fair pricey. Uh The gentleman asks uh, um, if the, I appear to be someone who. Okay, you you tell me if it's a fair pricey. The gentleman says that to judge by my own work. I would be a supporter of democracy, and uh, to judge by Mr. Mencken's and what I've said about him, the same could not be said of Mr. Mencken, and he asked me to comment on that. Would that be a fair summary? I think I'm going to take that as a yes. Well, uh, there is, um, I think the word that Mencken probably wanted to use and would have used, and is, is used by some people politically similar to him, is oclocracy, which is a Greek word meaning the rule of the mob. The rule of the people, yes, but not democracy. In other words, it's not a rule by citizens um, or by those who go to the agora and take a civic part in the life of the, of the community or the city. Uh, that it is rather an appeal to the lowest common denominator. It, it's quite clear to me that men can use the expression both ways. It's interesting to me as a, a student of Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine also because... Um, in the early days of the American Revolution, certainly John Adams used the term democratical to mean the pejorative. That he means you think any, you believe in the rule of any fool or all fools. Um, the word democratic was always used as an insult, uh, like Tory, for example, or suffragette, or impressionist. All of these terms were originally meant as insults, were adopted by those who supported the causes in a sort of ironic annexation. Mockery. So democracy had to be adopted, and I think is, in fact, I'm sure, is used in the positive for the first time only by Thomas Paine in The Rights of Man. So that the Mencken isn't writing that long after uh, this dispute has been either settled or not. Um, the original basis of the party division in the United States, Constitution not really mandating political parties at all, is between those who think the Constitution gives us a republic and those who think it also gives us a democracy. This question has not, in fact, been decided. The regret, therefore, it's easy enough for me to point out the contradiction in Mencken's case. I don't know whether, however, he was aware of it. I can't be sure that he was or that he knew that he 
used it in both moods, tenses, and, uh, and significances. This John. Uh, yeah, uh, you can't see me, but you might hear me. Uh, in answer to your question about Muslim influence, Mencken recommended 10,000 Muslim ministers be imported into the sovereign state of Georgia to enlighten the citizens. That's absolutely true. So he did, yeah, so he did. And I think, I don't think anyone's ever expressed a lower opinion of Islam than that. <laughs> I've been an admirer of your work for years, but there's two, there's two things that you mentioned in your talk that, that sort of puzzle me. Uh, because uh, I know a college is coming, I know that there are sides of him that are in the But the Mein Kampf that he read at that time was the abridged version, which was the only version that was available in English at that time. And that's why Senator Alan Cranston was so worried that people weren't seeing what Hitler really wanted people to see, that he translated the book later uh, that was brought out in Deborah Lipstadt's book. But the Dorothy Parker anecdote you mentioned in the beginning, uh, I had, when I saw your article on Vanity Fair about Chris Mankin, I looked her up. But I later found a, a letter written by Dorothy Parker to Mencken during the 1930s when Mencken came out against the lynching on the eastern shore and actually testified on behalf of the NAACP on Capitol Hill. And Dorothy Parker later sent him a telegram and said that Mencken was the greatest American that she knew. So I sort of wonder about that anecdote and I was just wondering where you got it from. Was there any that's a great question. Thank you. Yes, there is. Um, the The name of the author, I, well, I'll have it in a second, Marion Mead. Marion Mead wrote a splendid book entitled after Dorothy Parker's most famous question, uh, What Fresh Hell Is This? It's in there. Um, it's certainly true that Mencken always was opposed to lynching and the like, partly because he thought of it as oclocratic, as, as mob rule. He thought this is exactly the sort of thing you would expect from these, these riffraff. Um, so that doesn't surprise me. I'm very, it's a wonderful sequel, um, and I'd love to see that letter. Um, and I'm very grateful to you, because it, it wraps it up almost perfectly. Uh, but that, yes, that, that was very much in his mind. Look, is, but isn't it bizarre? Um, he poses lynching, he thinks Dixie is a Sahara of the Beaux-Arts. Uh, he can't say enough about, partly because you know, it is the hookworm and incest belt of the Anglo-Saxons. So, well, in 1948, the last time he really covers any real conventions, it's the last time America has a four-party uh, four election. And as well as the usual uh, dinosaur parties, there's, there's uh, Henry Wallace's Progressive Party and Strom Thurmond's American Party, the Dixiecrat Party. And Mencken votes for, Th for Thurmond. I think it's the last vote he ever casts. I've never heard anyone explain it. I don't know how that can be. That he would vote for uh, the... I'm sorry, he didn't vote for strong Thurmond. He later wrote a friend in the Baltimore Sun and said Thurmond is a Ku Kluxer. So I guess I'll vote for Wallace. Are you sure? <laughs> because he announced he was going to vote for Thurmond. Do we know whether he actually voted at all? <laughs> <laughs> because if you wanted a boob, if you wanted a boob, you, just that the Henry Wallace campaign was like a free gift. It's the sort of thing columnists, columnists live for. He certainly expressed a preference for the American Party. Now that seems, I've never heard anyone explain why that could possibly be. Right. Yeah, we should have met before. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not, I'm not done. I'm not done at all. The, the, um, I teach, at the, I teach at the New School uh, for Social Research in New York, which, as you know, gave sanctuary to uh, Theodore Adorno, um, Hannah Arendt, uh, Leo Strauss, and many other very considerable uh, German, not always Jewish, uh, scholars um, in the period of the Third Reich. And uh, it was by the New School, in fact, in 1938 that... Uh, no, 39, I'm sorry, late, late 39, 
that a full, complete, uh, unabridged translation of Mein Kampf was made. I have two copies still of it, a wonderful edition, because you can't get the book anymore. It may not even be on the shelves in this library, I don't know. Most libraries don't have it anymore. Most bookshops won't sell it to you. Uh, Amazon won't sell you a copy. You've got to go to a neo-Nazi website, take a chance. It's ridiculous. <laughs> The, the, the new school and later Senator Cranston said it is everybody's duty to read this book and we're putting in a long introduction to explain it in context as well. Uh, I don't remember now the date of, of, of Mencken's uh, review, but it would have been before... November 1933. 33, very soon after it would have been before... I know in any case it would have been before our edition came out because you wouldn't have been able to overlook the evidence that's bound in with the book. It's a great edition if you can get it. This is the new school edition of Mein Kampf. The lady on the left. Yes, I uh, came to Mencken in an unusual way. I read it's a promising start. <laughs> 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 and very proud of the great I've listened to all the tapes of the books, and they are available, and they're on tape, and they're wearing out. And as far as I know, there's no effort to put them on CD or even reproduce them. And I was wondering if you know if there's any organization that is trying to save these marvelous tapes. Because until you hear the spoken word of Nathan, you don't really appreciate it. Carlo? Well, and I'm looking at Winston Sanders from Baha'i Sue, who kind of puzzled. Winston, I'm. Well, I'm learning a lot. I'm learning a lot from every every question. I was given a CD of Mencken being interviewed on an early radio station. Right, but this is in his voice. No, no, no. Oh, good. Well, you shocked me because I was told there was. I was I was told. Well, that can be done again, surely. No, I was told there was only one. There was only one actual recording of his voice. I have that. But he 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 abhorred. He abhorred the electronic media. He agreed to give an interview to one close friend on radio. Obviously, didn't enjoy himself. I have what I thought were the only spoken words of Mencken. Oh well, well, I'll read them myself if no one else will do. The gentleman on the corner. Speak up. Yes, sir. Mencken. I had a mother who lived to be about. A, he lived with her until she died in 1927 or thereabouts. My recollection is his father died around 1898. And if his father hadn't died at such an early age, do you think he would have had the strength to defy his father to become a writer? Because everything I've read points to the fact that he listened to his parents and his father had a cigar factory in which he expected his son to work. Do you think he would have broken away to become a writer? Well, in Fred Hobson's biography, anyway, um, I can't remember now what Terry Teachout says about this particularly, but if, I, I remember from Hobson's biography, you get the very strong impression that Megan had to fight quite a battle against his father, rather as Dickens had to fight against his, to not be forced into a job in the blacking factory, in effect. Um, and, that, and that he expressed something uncomfortably like relief at his father's early demise. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I think that's true to some extent of all men, um, at least those who know who their fathers are, um, <laughs> or those who claim the office. And I think that, I think it's a pity, I must add, that Mrs. Mencken always had a plate of sandwiches for her boy waiting for him at home no matter uh, when he came back and that there was always a candle burning in the window because it meant he didn't get out enough it is a criticism of him, one I didn't have time to make, that you know, he never read Tocqueville. He went once, to, maybe twice, to California, often to New York, of course, occasionally to political conventions, once to Dayton, Tennessee. Didn't really travel around the country much at all, generally went home early to, to, to Mama. That, that can be limiting. Gentlemen, in the right. Speak up, please, so we can hear you. Excuse me? Could you enumerate some of the metaphorical rapes of President Clinton? Enumerate the metaphorical
Yes, no, the, the, I mean, the, the, no, no, it's, uh, I'm afraid I have to dispute the, the, the syntax uh, of, the, of the question. I mean, I've interviewed three women uh, on the record. It's in my book. Uh, it's called um, No One Left to Lie To. It's in the paperback version, the pink version. Uh, not in the first Three women, all socially upscale, all liberal Democrats, all... Uh, uh, at the time, anyway, a strong Clinton supporters who've described being uh, beaten and raped by him, and in each case uh, with the same M.O., as the police heartlessly call it, and none of them have ever heard of each other or met each other or had a chance to compare stories. In Islamic law, you're supposed to have six witnesses to a rape. I think it's six. God knows what goes on in these places. Um, <laughs> But I think that's only if a woman has to testify. She needs six independent witnesses. But anyway, I wasn't there. And I wouldn't particularly have wished to be a witness to any of this. But it's as close as anyone can get who was not there to saying that these are three truth-telling women and there was a serial rapist in the Oval Office for quite a long time and that half the people I know still think that was dandy. And, and, would, ha and would have him back or his wife. Well, then we do need Mencken. Uh, we only have time for a few more. The gentleman in the white shirt. It's one small point, but my account, uh, I believe, is still currently published in the Palestinian Authority. I don't know if my account is published in the Palestinian Authority, but if you want to get a, a quick uh, download of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, you can go to the Hamas website. And they have it all there for you. Another handy read, by the way. <laughs> published in England uh, originally, after it was brought back by the Tsarist, uh, Christian fascist, uh, Orthodox refugees from Russia, published by the Aaron Spottiswood, the official publisher of the Church of England, and endorsed by the London Times. Last question, this gentleman in the white shirt. Uh, I guess uh, you may recall about 20 years ago when the letters came out with the anti-Semitic uh, remarks by Lincoln, there was a jihad at the National Press Club to remove his name, you know, make a non-person as the Stalinist used to do. And I remember when that happened, all over town, you mentioned Woodrow Wilson, and I agree completely with your estimate of it. There's things named after Woodrow Wilson, who was the worst racist president of the 20th century. And yet, not a word, you know, there's the Wilson Center, this august institution. And it's like calling it the George Wallace Center. <laughs> Yes, I know what you mean. I mean, this is a pain in the ass actually all across the country at the moment. I teach in Berkeley some of the time. There was a, they changed the name of the Thomas Jefferson Primary School recently to the, I think, the Malcolm X. Uh, so they, uh, they changed it back again. I mean, I thought I don't mind this kind of thing going, on, but I want them. I want them to know uh, that there would be no such country as the United States if it wasn't for Thomas Jefferson. As long as they acknowledge that, I don't mind. But if they try and airbrush that, then I, I get mean uh, and scornful. You know, scornful and I'd even w will run the risk of hurting somebody's feelings. <laughs> there, now I've said it. I've said it. It took me an hour and a half to nerve myself, but feelings sometimes have to be hurt. I know my mission statement is I don't go while anyone can claim they have a question I didn't answer. Okay, one more. Yes, sir. I would think you could buy Mein Kampf in London, yes. It's very, very, very difficult to get in the United States. Disgracefully so. Sorry? Well, good for borders. Yes, sir. I have read many of your columns in the nation. And I gathered you left the nation because of disagreements with your editorial policy areas. But I wondered, uh, and then I, when I gather from your television, you're a strong supporter of President Bush and his policies in the Iraq War. Are you still a strong supporter of his policies in the Iraq War? Uh, yes, I was in favor of um, the overthrow of Saddam Hussein when uh, George Bush was governor of Texas. And um, his change of office hasn't changed my opinion. Um, I think the, the United States has to know that 
it is, its existence is radically incompatible with that of uh, psychopathic totalitarian expansionist dictators. It has to find that out sooner or later. It usually does find this out, and uh, coexistence with them is not possible, which in my view is a good thing, because I don't think it's desirable either. I think it's a great pity that it was left to President Bush to overthrow Saddam Hussein. President Clinton promised to do it. Vice President Gore promised to do it. Uh, the President's father promised to do it. It's not his fault that so many years of the life of the Iraqi people and Kurdish people were wasted and squandered uh, in the interlude. But it did get done in the end. And as was famously said by Winston Churchill, that's the great thing about the United States. It always does the right thing after it's tried everything else. <laughs> They're coming, they're coming to take me away, it seems. Um, um, you, it's your call. I mean, I'm, I'm not right. going anywhere. One, two more questions. Yes, sir. You uh, mentioned Lincoln's uh, views on democracy. And just thinking back to uh, Churchill's democracy was the uh, worst form of government we've ever had, except for all the other ones we've tried. I'm wondering if Lincoln ever I think with Mencken it was more, more something like an, um, an aesthetic. There's a, a phrase I, I overuse because I think it's so clever. It's from my friend uh, Ian McEwan whose novels I hope at least some of you will have read by now. This is from an early one called The Child in Time. No, A Child in Time, I think. Never mind. It's A Child in Time, where the, the, the narrator, the protagonist, is, um, his life is ruined by the disappearance of his child and the consequent breakup of his marriage, and he's reduced to being slumped in front of the television watching daytime TV and seeing what he's never seen before, which is these people who are willing to go on screen and humiliate themselves for pay in front of perfect strangers or humiliate others. He watches this appalling bread and circuses, daytime garbage, and he, he comes up with a phrase for it, which is the, the Democrat's pornography. <laughs> in other words, if you're a Democrat because you admire and like your fellow creatures and think the best can be brought out in them, you often met with some pretty tough evidence against your view. In any real sense, in favor of National Socialism, he wouldn't because of its mob, its autocratic character. But... I think nostalgia for the Hohenzollerns is only nostalgia myself, I think, for the, for the prelude to fascism, but you can't, you can't say it's quite the same thing. But it gives you a clue as to what's going on in the old cerebellum. Absolute last question. Yes, sir. Could you compare I Well, I can tell you, when I have Stone in the press, National Press Club, if you like, and the answer to this question, I mean, yeah, Stone only really wanted to write, though he had a great knowledge of literature and of the classics, he only really wanted, I knew him quite well, he wanted to write mainly about politics. And he wanted to live in Washington, which Mencken would have hated to do. And he sort of forced himself to live there. And um, was an absolute believer in the, in the era of the common man and of the little guy and all that stuff that Mencken thought was, was baloney and was, as Mencken was, in favor of Zionism. But I think Mencken's sympathy for Zionism, at least I suspect, because it's, it's um, Zionism used to be a very popular belief among those who didn't like Jews, because it seems to provide an answer. They want to leave. <laughs> well, come on. <laughs> this is a twofer. <laughs> and they're only towel heads where they want to go anyway. Who gives a, who gives a damn? Um, Oswald Mosley was a Zionist, for example. Joseph Goebbels was a Zionist. No, no. So, yeah, we, all we want is a Jew-free territory. We don't care where the fuck you go. Um, speaking of the National Press Club, they don't show how hypocritical they are. Uh, how dare they rename the Mencken Room, these riffraff. They wouldn't be able to shine his shoes. Um, as Quite late on in the 1950s, I have Stone invited a black lawyer to join him for lunch at his regular table at the National Press Club. The, man showed up, took his place at the table. The major d' appeared and said, Mr. Stone, can I have a word with you at the 
front desk, Stone waddled over, and the major D then asked him what I think is an imperishable question. He said, Mr. Stone, is that a black man at your table? <laughs> and um, is he sworn to tell the truth uh, at all times? So it seems. Well, I'm afraid I have to ask you both to leave. He did not resign from the National Press Club for this reason. He resigned because you needed to get 12 signatures to make a protest to the committee, and he couldn't get 12. So he quit. And it wasn't until 1982 that they called him up. He was now full of rank and honor and so on, and said, congratulations, you're this year's special guest honorary testimonial dinner at the National Press Club. Well done. He said, screw you, I'm not coming. He said, what do you mean you're not coming? We printed the invitations. I'm not coming. He told them why he'd quit. And they said, but this is awful, Mr. Stone. You know, what can we do? And he said, I'll tell you what you can do. You can find that guy. I have his name here. You can find him and ask him to be the, my fellow guest. He turned out to be Chief Justice of the U.S. Virgin Islands. And they did have to invite him. But that's how pharisaical the authorities of the National Press Club are, and how smarmy and how convinced of their own rectitude. And that's why if they want to rename the H.L. Lincoln Room, they can all go straight to hell. <laughs>